As I was preparing, I became quite aware of the fact that, having not met you before, I'm going to be coming into a situation where you are all coming from various places, emotionally, spiritually, circumstantially. Some of you may still be smelling the smoke of bombs that went off in your week, and you're just glad that you made it to another Sunday. Others of you may be coming in with a limp, not from this week, but bearing the wounds of bygone years, still bothering you, still aching. Others, by the grace of God, may be coming in here with joy, energy, exuberance, praising the Lord for what he just did yesterday or the day before. Either way, though, whatever our situation, one thing is certain. Life in this fallen world is often war. It may currently feel like peacetime, or it may resemble the horrors of spiritual warfare. Either way, there is an earth-shaking war happening all around us, and we will face hardship at some point, if not right now. We have a formidable enemy. He takes a sick pleasure in snuffing out life, physically sometimes, but especially spiritual life. He has a joy in crushing our souls. And he excels at it. He knows what he's doing. This may cause us to ask, will we survive this war? Can we endure it? Or are we going to end up becoming a tragic casualty? One of many littered across the landscape of the ages. What words, when we get to the end of our life, will we use to describe our life? Looking back on it. Fearful, tumultuous, brutal, or perhaps will we exude confidence, gladness, peace? I pray the latter for all of us, and I have prayed it as I've prepared this message. So how do we do this? How do we survive this warfare in life? And how does Psalm 46 help us here? Let me pray briefly and then we'll jump in. Father, we are dependent on you performing a miracle here. We have an enemy, and he prowls like a roaring lion. Our only hope is you. And so we turn to you now in your word. May you speak to us for your glory's sake. Amen. Here's my main point. God's character grounds his people and evokes their glad exaltation. Once again, it's God's character that grounds us and evokes our glad exaltation. The format of this message is simply going to be to break that into three phrases, look at each one, and then close with application. We're going to spend the majority of our time in the first point looking at God's character. So let's get to it. God's character. Much of the Christian life is simply structured around God slowly and persistently teaching us who he is. Who he really is. We all have perceptions of who God is. But God cares that we know him truly. As he really is. Not our view of reality. But reality itself. How does the psalmist help us here? He focuses on specific attributes of God's character. He does this intentionally. Not by accident. You see God knows 
what it's like when your life gets put in the blender. And he also knows what you need to remember when you find yourself in that place. So the odds are, if you find yourself at some point in life struggling, feeling mauled by life, the odds are you're forgetting one or more of these realities that the psalmist points out to us. So therefore, God, through the psalmist, reminds us of these three facets of his nature. These will ground the logic and application of the entire psalm. So what three aspects are they then? First, God is powerful. Now I know that's perhaps the most Sunday school answer you could possibly say other than maybe Jesus' name. You might say, we know this. My God is so great, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I got it. I've known it my whole life. But have you? Have you really tasted this as real every day of your life? Do you routinely bet your life on his power working for you? The psalmist does. And he makes sure to highlight his power throughout the psalm. So if you don't have your Bibles open, I invite you to have them open. We're going to be looking at words and phrases within it. And we'll start at verses 8 and 9. He's reflecting on the power of God. He says the Lord's power brings, quote, desolations on earth and makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Wars end because God says so. The entire world submits to his jurisdiction. To the ends of the earth, wars obey his command. That is power. That is unlike any earthly ruler who decides to go invade a country and then watches his efforts sputter. God ends every war. How? How might he do this? Well, let's just continue on through the rest of verse 8 to see. It says, He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God ends wars by obliterating the weapons used to wage them. He disarms the enemy, making a mockery of his weapons. Isaiah 54 verse 17 says it this way, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Whether fashioned by man or by Satan himself, the most advanced weapons used in opposition to God find themselves broken, shattered, and burned. They are indeed as less than nothing in comparison to God's might. Another picture the psalmist uses for our mighty God is found in verse 7 and verse 11, which is the repeated refrain. In both of these verses, you'll find the phrase, the Lord of hosts. Now, every name used for God in Scripture carries a freight of meaning. God cares what we call him, and his names teach us about him. The Lord of hosts, as a phrase, for some of us, may be one of those things that we've heard a million times, but the meaning of it remains just a little bit fuzzy. We sing this in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we'll sing later. The original lyrics say, Lord Sabaoth his name. And in English, oftentimes it's been changed to the Lord of hosts. Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, it's not referring to the Sabbath, like we might think, but to a Hebrew word, Sevaot, which means hosts or armies. 
God is the Lord of hosts, meaning he's the Lord of armies, of heavenly armies, of beings that if you could see them, they would astonish you and strike fear into any who think of opposing such armies. And God is the one who commands those armies. They wage war according to his will. He speaks the word and they go. He speaks the word and they come. Your trials, your hardships, your spiritual enemies, they oppose you only to their doom. Perhaps my favorite illustration, though, from this psalm in regards to God's power is found in verse 6. Here we see just a string of four phrases. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. In poetic fashion, the logical connecting words are implied rather than stated. But this verse serves as a comparison of powers. Earthly power on the one hand, God's power on the other. And the verse goes together as two pairs of phrases, each one giving a cause and an effect. So if we were to just say it in standard prose, it would sound something like this. When the nations rage, kingdoms totter. When he utters his voice, the earth melts. There is no comparison here whatsoever. The raging of earthly powers may cause headaches. It may upend nations. But with one word from God, the fabric of reality unravels. There is no comparison. If God can end global wars, if he can rule the hosts of heaven, if he can unravel the very fabric of our reality, then surely he can end all conflict, including conflict with your spouse, with your children, with your boss, your roommate, your best friend. He can end the war which cancer wages against your body. The the war that our culture rages against us all around. Even the war of those nagging spiritual doubts and questions. All of them will cease to the end of the earth. Our God is powerful. Power that remains far off, however gives no aid. You cannot receive healing from medicine that remains outside your body. It has to be near, so near that it is within you. And that's our second attribute from Psalm 46, God's presence. God may easily do everything that we just saw from the psalm, but if he's not present with us, it does us no good. The psalmist, thankfully, speaks of God's presence right out of the gate. Look at verse 1. The second half of that verse reveals God as, quote, very present. You might think it's sufficient to simply say God is present. But neither God nor his inspired psalmist thought so. Our scriptures don't say present. They say very present. To demonstrate, present means when a teacher calls out, In class, your name, you raise your hand and say, here. Very present means you call a loved one in trouble, and before you're even done with the sentence, they say, I'm on my way now. Present means you listen to someone's words. Very present means you hang on their every word. 
Our God is not just nearby. He is here. Even now in this room. And even when you're in the midst of your war zones of life. Verse 5 reiterates this presence. Reassuring us that God is in the midst of his people. Not just near. Right in the middle of us. He can smell every breath he has given you. And he can hear every beat of your heart that he has given you. He doesn't just do presence, though. He is presence. It's his very nature. It's his character. He's always desired to, planned to, and will succeed to dwell with us. That last phrase, with us, actually shows up twice in our psalm. Verse 7 and verse 11, that same refrain. You recall that powerful Lord of hosts? Well, he remains with us. Now, I said that's who he is, not just what he does. So how is that? Well, a tiny little foray into the Hebrew language will clarify. The Hebrew word underlying that phrase, uh, with us, is imanu, which probably sparks one of the names of God immediately. Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Hebrew, literally, that name just means the with us God. His very nature is that he is with us. He teaches us that name so that we might know something of him. His very nature is to dwell with us. And he's made this explicit throughout all history. You search your Bible and you will see it everywhere. But never as explicit, as crystal clear, as in the coming of Emmanuel, Jesus, the with us God, the incarnate Son. God not only exudes power, but his presence. Now, if you think about that for five minutes, having the all-powerful God in your presence leads to one of two possibilities. The terrifying proposition of his power working against you or the peaceful bliss of his infinite power working on your behalf. The psalmist shows clearly that for God's people, his power and presence gives protection That's our third attribute now. God is protective. His presence serves for his people as, as verse 1 says, a refuge and strength. We already saw later in that verse that God is very present. But now notice that he is very present as a help in trouble. God does not show up to smite us, but to save us. He dwells with us in order to be our refuge. What do we need in a refuge? What do you look for when you go refuge shopping? If you could go around and look at all the refuges refuges and pick yours, what would you pick? Well, if you have common sense, you would look for a refuge with the greatest safety and the surest reliability. It must be able to handle anything that comes your way. And it must do so every time, without fail. We've already seen in this passage that God is more than sufficient on the power side. Is he reliable, though? Look at the last half of verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. We already saw the nature of how God's power helps his people. But when? 
can we count on this help? According to this verse, his help comes when morning dawns. Now Jews marked their day by the sun, and the first hour of the day was when morning dawned at around 6 a.m. We'll have to calibrate that in the summer back to maybe 5 a.m. for Minnesota summers. But as the sun comes up is when he's talking about that. The significance is this, is that God's help comes to us in the morning. First thing, it arrives swiftly, not eventually. It's faster than Jimmy John's freaky fresh delivery. It's more reliable than Amazon's same-day delivery. It arrives early like Minnesota summer days. Now, perhaps you're facing a problem. I just made that claim that it comes quickly. You might say, Mark, you say that God's help comes fast? Why do trials imprison me right now then? Why hasn't God's help come yet? It sure feels like he's abandoned me. Well, I have two responses, but before I get to those, I just want to say I know what that feels like. I have tasted those tears of waiting. And I just want to reaffirm you that God sees you in that. And he cares. The two responses, though. One is, he is helping you right now, even in bearing up under the unbearable load. His help flows to you right now through his spirit, sustaining you for yet another moment, yet another hour, yet another day. You will be okay in the most ultimate sense because his help is already here. Second response, God helps you in the best way possible. Romans 8.28 clarifies this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Not all things are good, but they all work for, towards your good. Your suffering and the wars of life are not meaningless. God has purposed them to accomplish good in your life. You will taste deliverance, but only after the good and perfect work is done. The kind of work that you will one day rejoice in, thanking him for doing that work. And when that work is done, when morning dawns, God's help will be immediate. So... When shopping for a refuge, God's proves, God proves to be the strongest, most reliable protection. The refrain, again, verse 7 and 11, they both call God the God of Jacob, the covenant-keeping God, our fortress. We possess the protection of a powerful, present fortress. This is scandalously good news. But how can such sinners as us receive protection rather than punishment from such a holy God, the dwelling of the Most High from Psalm 46. We surely do not deserve preservation, but condemnation. Well, God's power is with us and for us because the with us God, Emmanuel, came and dealt with Satan, disarming his only damning weapon, unforgiven sin. 
punctuated by the nails in Jesus' hands. He, the incarnate word, the incarnate sentence, communicates God's solution to this problem. He pronounces our life sentence of eternal life in him through faith. For those of us who believe in Christ and him only for our salvation, this fortress becomes the impenetrable refuge we seek when all the harassments of life come our way. So what is true for us now? What is the reality of our faith? The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Even death itself, as Tim Keller says, can only make us better. Perhaps the greatest help, though, that Psalm 46 gives us in surviving the wars of life comes from this holistic view of God. God is powerful, present, and protective. He is our hope. This is our reality in Christ. Now what happens if we live in this reality? The answers come in parts two and three of our main point. God's character grounds his people and evokes their glad exaltation. So let's talk about him grounding his people. Seeing the reality of God's character puts stable ground under our feet, even if the real ground falls away. Knowing God's character makes you a certain type of person. So according to Psalm 46, what kind of people does this make? Well, for starters, look at verse 5. Because God lives in the midst of her, as we saw, God's people shall not be moved. We saw back in verse 2 that the earth gets thrown into the heart of the sea. And in verse 6, we saw that the kingdoms of the earth totter, which is the exact same Hebrew verb for be moved. So we see the oceans and creation moving. We see nations moving. But in contrast to that, God's people will not budge. In sharp contrast to the rest of the world, God's people stand confidently and firmly. Because when the all-powerful, always present, protecting God says you will not be moved, you possess confidence that you will not move. People who know God in this way are immovable people. So, such confidence then frees us from fear. Verses 1 to 3 show this logic exactly. Because, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though it trembles, the mountains tremble at its swelling. No fear. 1 John 4.18 capitalizes on this same reality when it says perfect love, perfect powerful, near, protecting love casts out fear. Unlike the tumultuous city of the world, there is another city. What replaces fear in this city? 
Well, let's look back into verse 4 to find out. Continuing along verses 1 to 3, now we're into 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Unlike the raging ocean imagery outside the city of God, inside is the calm waters that make the city glad. As manifold grace flows to us from God through Christ, the angry seas of the world are changed into the slow babbling brooks of calming water. Rather than the fear, Christians experience a settled gladness flowing out of the very nature of God, knowing, really knowing God's character transforms fear to confident gladness. And note, it doesn't take the whole river to accomplish this. It only takes one of its streams. There is a river whose streams make glad. You could argue that any small amount of this water will do the trick. God's joy boasts infinite potency. It is enough. A caveat does exist, though. Notice how verse 4 also only addresses the city of God. Only God's people, citizens of his city, experience such a confident joy. Outsiders do not taste this water, which means you cannot just visit the city of God when you are in trouble. You must live here. If you chase after the things of the world, rather than seeking first the kingdom of God, you will find yourself experiencing the whiplash of waves in the tumultuous ocean. Instead, if you desire access to these waters of peace, you must have Christ as your treasure, as your very life. When you receive him this way, you become permanent residents of the city of God. And then you can cultivate this type of peace portrayed in verse 4. So where does your soul currently dwell? Are you inside or outside the city of God? If you're inside, rejoice in what Christ is for you and what he offers for you. That is a joyful reality. The greatest thing we could ever experience in life is the second birth. And if this is not you, I just want to let be an invitation to you. Why not today be the day that you stop sailing the rough, choppy seas and settle into the kingdom of God? He can hear your heart right now. So, God's character grounds his people, giving them confidence and overthrowing fear with gladness. That gladness does not remain silent, though. And so we come now to part three. God's character evokes his people's glad exaltation. Unexpressed joy is incomplete joy. C.S. Lewis once wrote that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. When we understand God's true nature, We cannot help but express our joy. Psalm 46 carries this logic one step further in verse 10. So let's look there now. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God's character will always produce glad worship in his people. That is what it means for God to be God. 
Isaiah 42.8 rephrases it this way. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Our psalm emphasizes that by repeating the phrase twice. I will be exalted. The repetition indicates God's guarantee of his glorification. If we live according to the logic of Psalm 46, we will erupt into praise, glorifying the powerful present protector with our whole hearts. Every area of our lives, private and corporate, will undergo change. Imagine the outcome for a minute. If a body of believers constantly reminds one another of these things, all the fruit that will spring up from them. Worship, however, does not just stay confined within the church. Notice the progression demonstrated by those same repeated phrases. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There is emphasis, but there is also motion from nations to earth. What does that mean? God's exaltation will spread until it covers the entire earth. The glory will not stop until it has spread fully. He guarantees it. And with his character, it is as good as done. So how does this spreading worship happen? Where does the effect come from, practically speaking? Will it not spring from the mouths of his people as they declare his glory to the ends of the earth? Mouths like ours are tools in God's hands to spread his kingdom. We get to play a role in this. When we know and love the God of Psalm 46, we will not remain silent, but will pour out our praise and transform the communities around us. And some of us will become so burdened by this message and our need to consummate it through the expression of it that we will go to the ends of the earth, even the hard places, in order that all might know Christ in his beauty, in his fullness, as this type of God. God's character evokes his people's glad exaltation. So let's recap the psalmist's view of reality. God is infinitely powerful. He does all that he pleases. And he is here, right now, with you, in this moment. And his presence is not here to destroy, but to uphold, to protect. Therefore, therefore, we will not fear. Even if the world melts, we will not fear. We will taste the sweet fruits of settled gladness. And we will not be content until we have told heaven and earth about it. Just as Levi preached... We will continue this pattern until every knee bows and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ and him alone is Lord. So at the outset, I mentioned that we would finish with application. When our weeks are turned to war zones, what do we do? Like practically speaking, what do we do to live this type of life? Thankfully, the psalmist gives direct advice here as well. I don't know if you noticed, but there's only two places in the entire psalm 
where there are commands. These commands clue us in on how to survive the war of life. And not only survive, but be more than conquerors through him who loved us. So let's look there now. Verses 8 and 10. Each one offers a pair of commands. Verse 8 says, come and behold. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Interestingly, these pairs of commands reiterate the same idea. They coordinate with one another. In other words, come from verse 8 relates to be still with verse 10. And likewise, behold the works of God in verse 8 coordinates with uh, know that I am God from verse 10. So as we heed these commands, we'll experience the safety and security of our stronghold. But that begs the question, well, then how do those relate? How do those commands all fit together? The first pair, come and be still, seems particularly perplexing. Am I really telling you that the command to come and the command to be still are really talking about the same reality? One sure sounds like moving, and the one very clearly sounds like not moving. So which is it? Do I come or do I not? Well, Jeremiah will help us with this. 2.13. And I'll just read the quote for you. It says, this is God speaking. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In the singular act of apostasy, rejecting the true God, Israel left the fountain of living waters and woke, went to broken cisterns instead. Psalm 46 here commands the opposite. In regards to the fountain of living waters, the command is come. Come to this fountain and thirst no more. And on the other hand, in regards to the false idols that goes on outside the city of God, the command is be still. Stop running to the broken cisterns. Stop going there and come to God. Be still so that you may come. This effect gets amplified even more when we realize that these commands originally target not God's people, but the raging nations from verse 6, and they come as rebuke. Just like Israel received the rebuke through Jeremiah, the psalmist depicts God rebuking the raging sea of the idolatrous nations. Now even just that last sentence, do you remember another time a raging sea heard the same rebuke? The Gospels recount the story of Jesus in the boat with his disciples in the midst of the storm. The boat was moved. It was rocking back and forth. The disciples were moved by fear. But Jesus was not moved. Instead, he stood up to the wind and the waves and he commanded, be still. And he was silent. It obeyed. In the same way, the psalmist demonstrates God's silencing command, calling wicked nations to repent and know that he alone is God. The same rebuke that can turn an idolatrous nation back to Christ can guard a Christian's soul through the battles of life. If the rebuke calls for the wicked to turn and obey, how much more should God's own people? Therefore, come and be still serve as two ways 
of checking where you run in the midst of your trouble. Recall to mind one of the more recent times where you felt like a bomb hit your life. Whether it was panic gripping your heart or heavy sobs piercing it. Recall what happened in your heart and mind in those moments. Where did you find yourself running in the immediate aftermath? Did you run to the quiet stillness of God's presence? Did you go to your Bible and ask the Lord to speak? Or like I so easily do, did you perhaps run to a broken cistern? Maybe problem solving by the strength of your own flesh. Maybe escapism. There's a myriad number of them. But did you go to any of the false cisterns? If we want to experience this peace that the psalmist is telling us about, we must habituate ourselves to in those moments of panic or stress, stopping, ceasing, being still, and then coming to his presence. The second pair of commands then flows directly out of this. If we still ourselves from the panic, and if we come instead to God, the remaining commands then explain what we are to do when we get there. Namely, behold the works of the Lord in order to know that he is God. Both come and be still invite us to remember the character of our God. We will grow confident and overflow in glad exaltation if we do. This process of sanctification comes as we build increasing strength in this habit. And as I've applied this in my own life, I've become increasingly painfully aware of just how often this is necessary. This is not just an occasional tool for the big things in life. This is a second-by-second way of life. But take to heart, if you're feeling the sense of, I can't do that. I've tried. I know that I'm supposed to trust him. Take heart. God will help you. Christ's blood purchased his help for you. So that you will grow glad in him. And you will worship him as a result. We saw this in the phrase in verse 10 where he duplicated the guarantee of his exaltation. And if he's going to use our praise to exalt himself, then he's going to help us to overflow into the praise. So it ends up then, our main point was actually the very fulfillment and application of itself. Be still and know that our God's powerful, present protection His character grounds us and evokes our glad exaltation. Let's pray and then sing these truths to one another. Father, we thank you for your word. If we didn't have your word, we wouldn't know the first things about reality. You peel back all the things that go on behind our physical eyes in the spiritual realm we can't see. And you equip us for joy in your name. Lord Jesus, be with those of us who are suffering right now from any number of things. And I pray that we would taste the fruit of this peace. May it all be to your glory, Christ, as you prepare to return and establish your kingdom forever on this earth. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.